Wait a minute. Haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Arastling. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched the second of the 1950 nominees, Sunset Boulevard. And David, don't worry, I did not hate it. Okay, good. <laughs> I genuinely a little bit was like, I did it as a bit because that was like how confident I was you would love it or like it at least a lot. And then I was like, oh God, what do I do on the off chance? <laughs> I did not. I fucking loved this movie. Okay, thank <laughs> God. I was really watching it with a critical eye, trying to find everything a human being could hate about it last night, just in case. I maybe have an argument for giving this movie a nine, maybe, instead of a ten. <laughs> like We should get into it, because I'm interested to hear that. <laughs> here's the thing. I don't want to give it a nine. The only thing I think about this movie is that the first 20 minutes, you really are waiting. You're not waiting for Norma Desmond to show up, but it doesn't lock into place until Norma Desmond shows up. Until then, you're like, this is a pretty good movie. Yeah. And then Norma Desmond shows up and you're like, holy shit, this movie rules. Yeah. I mean, one thing. Oh, one thing. There's like 50 things I want to say about this movie. So yeah. maybe we should do like a very quick plot description without giving a whole lot away because spoiler alert for the end of the podcast i'm going to say watch this movie right now <laughs> yeah for sure yeah joe gillis is a, an out of work down on his luck screenwriter he the collection agents are coming to take his car and he's just about to just give up on Hollywood and move back to the Midwest and become, I think he says he's a copywriter at the very end, was his job before he moved out to L.A.? Yeah, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Point is, in trying to get away from these collection agents, he pulls into this dilapidated old mansion. On Sunset Boulevard. Yes. And God, we're going to talk about like literally the opening shot of this movie once we get out of the plot description. It turns out that mansion belongs to Norma Desmond, who was an incredibly famous silent film actress and didn't manage to make the jump to talkies. She has written this incredibly long epic about uh, Salome. How do you pronounce that? I've always heard of Salome, but she says Salome. Yes, that's why I'm confused. But it's terrible. It's a, it's, it's a disaster. But Joe kind of manages to weasel his way into cleaning it up for her. But then they get into this increasingly strange codependent relationship that doesn't seem to involve him doing very much work on the script and doesn't seem to involve her giving him very much money directly. Yeah, I mean, he's basically her, like, kept boy. Yeah, that's kind of the act to turn is this realization he has that she is in love with him and that he is a kept man. Then act two is spent with sort of these dueling plot lines. One is 
Norma Desmond becoming increasingly convinced that Cecil B. DeMille is in fact going to make her bad script into a movie, aided by her attendant Max, who's kind of hiding from her how much her star has fallen. And has been forever and is very protective of her. And and we will leave that at that. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Joe is in a very weird relationship with his friend's girlfriend, eventually fiance, who is a script reader at Paramount who wants to work with him on writing what sounds like a pretty bad romantic comedy about uh, a teacher, uh, two teachers, one who works the day shift, one who works the night shift, who share the same apartment but never meet each other because they're splitting rent and him getting sort of... Which does sound totally ridiculous, except for I watched Babylon Berlin very early in the pandemic, which I will highly recommend as well. I... And there was a situation where there was a woman who was renting a room to sleep during the night and then the other person was sleeping there during the day because they were a bartender. Yeah. I, so I was like, all right, that, I guess that could happen. <laughs> it's, it isn't really necessarily that I think the setup is too ridiculous. It's just that whenever you hear something about it, there's just too much going on here. But like, honestly, the script isn't the point. No. The point is A, their romance and B, that it sort of revives this creative instinct within him, why he wanted to be a writer that had been beaten out of him by Hollywood. Those two plot lines kind of, uh, I guess, come together. But basically, Norma just kind of keeps getting crazier and crazier and crazier and more and more committed to going through these huge beauty regimens to be ready for filming this movie that will never get made. And Joe keeps being pulled more and more away from Norma until there's finally this breaking point where he pretends like he's going to stay with Norma so that this other girl goes off to her very nice fiancé and doesn't end up with him because he thinks of himself as kind of a shit, which is also kind of accurate. <laughs> and after she goes off, he decides he's going to leave Norma and Norma Desmond loses it and shoots him and he falls dead in the pool, which- Wait, does she shoot him? Yeah. I thought Max shot him. No, she shoots him. Oh, okay. She shoots him three times. Well, I know whoever shot him shot him three times, but Max was lurking near the pool. No, Max was coming back from putting Joe's bags in the car. Oh, yeah, right. She right, shoots right. him. She shoots him, and then there's sort of this incredibly iconic coda sequence that's like the best ending in film history, where she has just had a complete break from reality and believes that she is, in fact, shooting her next picture for Cecil B. DeMille when it is the newsreel cameras come to capture her being hauled away to prison for murdering a guy. And she comes down the stairs while everybody is in this strange dreamlike trance. Like, I can't really describe how good the ending to this movie is. I think it's just that everybody feels incredibly sorry for this woman in a way that's like... But also they want to be there to watch the train wreck, so they end up participating in her psychotic break. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit more, but plot-wise, it ends with her doing, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, and walking directly into the camera as she blurs out of focus. 
and that's the end of the movie. But it is absolutely a movie that hangs on execution rather than plot. Because, like, the plot is pretty good. The plot is kind of standard noir a little bit. But Well, it is and it isn't, though, because the femme fatale in this situation is not an ingenue. And I feel like that's one of the things that makes this movie so fucking good is that it is very good at demonstrating sexism and ageism without saying that those things are good. <laughs> yeah. She's the femme fatale, but she's also... Gloria Swanson was actually 50 when she played this part, which fucking mind-blowing. She looks amazing. But I guess Norma Desmond is also supposed to be 50. It's never really nailed down. Yeah, Joe does say at the end, there's nothing wrong with being 50 as long as you don't pretend like you're 25. Right. Which I think implies that she is that age. But also, on a certain level, it doesn't really matter. Right. All that matters is she is, quote unquote, too old for Hollywood, which can be anywhere from like 60 to 22. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the film is actually quite good about indicting the sexism and ageism of Hollywood and demonstrating what happens when you treat women like objects that you put on screen and move around instead of like human beings, which... Everyone from the studio to Max, who is doing this to protect her, has done and has ended up creating this incredibly fragile person who breaks pretty easily. I mean, she tries to kill herself at one point about halfway through the film. And Max says that that is not the first time that has happened. In fact, her Mansion has no locks on any of the doors so that he can stop her from killing herself. Right. And we learned that before she makes the suicide attempt. And also that seems to clinch her relationship with Gillis from being, oh, yeah, well, you're rewriting my script, but occasionally I hire an orchestra so we can tango around my ballroom to something that is physical and romantic if twisted and manipulative (laughs) yeah and also points to the fact that women are taught that their desirability is what makes them valuable so literally paying him to treat her as if she is desirable to him even though he doesn't get like a salary he has room and board And all his debts paid off. Yeah, and she buys him, like, fancy outfits and and watches and such. But, like, yeah, he hasn't given a salary. I think that this movie is fucking brilliant from top to bottom, so I don't know which part of it to start with. (laughs) I mean, like, we can start that literally the very first shot is one of those on-the-street spray painted in road signs that tell you what street you are on that says sunset boulevard and then the camera pans and just starts driving down sunset boulevard that fucking rules it's a called shot it's great i want to talk before we finish a little bit about the ways that i think this movie is obviously made by very smart people who made a very good movie but also kind of has some lucky breaks to it Like, apparently Billy Wilder wanted much more of a younger fuckboy type for Joe Gillis. Like, literally wanted the guy who played the fuckboy in The Heiress, who was cast and paid and then dropped out at the last minute. 
And I think there's sort of a weird off-kilter energy to William Holden also being a little bit older in this than Norma Desmond treats him. Because she kind of treats him as her young boy toy. But he plays as very much in his, like, mid-30s. Or early 30s, but he's definitely on that side of the 3-0. <laughs> yeah. And Montgomery Clift would have been kind of not savvy enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. The Wikipedia page says that he probably dropped out because he was in a relationship in real life with an older woman that kind of had this financial dimension to it. And he was just like, I don't want to fucking touch that with a 10-foot pole. But his stated reason was, I did this in the heiress and I don't think I did a very good job. And he did do this in the heiress and he didn't do a very good job. So I support his stated reason. I don't think it would have been a disaster or anything. Um, but I do think there is a degree to which this movie... This movie's flaws, quote unquote, like William Holden being kind of weird casting, like the dialogue being a little bit, not even sloppy, but like Nikki watched this with me because it's one of her favorite movies. And one of the things she said is it's weird Double Indemnity came first because Double Indemnity just has that like pep to it, that kick, you know, mm. that some of the noir dialogue at the start of this, you're like, that's weird. And by the end, you're like, oh, that's kind of weird because Joe isn't a very good writer. <laughs> or, <laughs> or at least that's what I decided to tell myself, is that this isn't quite purple noir dialogue. It's Joe Gillis's purple dialogue. The voiceover maybe is a little bit noirish, but the actual dialogue is pretty. I mean, it's, this is hard to say, right? Because Norma is so over the top. Yeah. But I think it's interesting how much this film is referred to as being a noir film because I think that cinematographically, which is a word that I will someday learn how to pronounce immediately, today is not the day, that it certainly falls in line with that. But because the house and the ostentatiousness of it is so much of a piece with this film, it's also extremely gothic. For sure. And that the noir quality of it, I think, is kind of not undercut, but I think it is more sophisticated than your average noir film. Because I think that Norma Desmond is a more interesting character than your average femme fatale in a noir film. Yeah. She's not just trying to bump off her husband for the insurance money. You know what I mean? <laughs> for sure. And that's why I say I think the movie locks into place when she shows up. Because I think you realize this movie's genre is Norma Desmond. <laughs> When when she shows up on screen. Yeah, but, but I mean, it really is. Yeah. Or Miss Havisham, but... <laughs> I mean, they specifically reference Miss Havisham when the movie arrives at Norma Desmond's mansion. But this is not my insight at all. But I actually think horror owes more of a debt to this movie than noir does in a weird way. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. There is a lot of Crimson Peak... <laughs> came out of this movie <laughs> for sure and even like rosemary's baby the like 60s and 70s as horror switched from being a b-movie genre into being kind of big business and a semi-respectable part of hollywood this seems to be a movie people grabbed from a lot and like 
I mean, this is obviously a huge influence on David Lynch. His character in Twin Peaks is named Gordon Cole after an incredibly minor character in this movie. There is a certain kind of the horror isn't the violence. The horror is just everything is so weird. (laughs) That's pretty spot on. But that's true, that there's always this feeling of, like, something is going to jump out of the shadows, even though nothing ever does. And the cinematography and the score do a really good job of making you feel the oppression that living with Norma Desmond would be. That at any moment she may be like, I need you to do something, or I'm having a nervous breakdown, or... I need you to tell me that I'm pretty or whatever. Oh, God. There's a singular moment when the opening orchestration, Nikki was like, am I crazy or is this kind of David Lynch adjacent? And I was like, eh, kind of. But there's a very brief scene where Norma Desmond does a Charlie Chaplin impression. (laughs) There is this calliope music where Nikki immediately went, oh, it's crazy clown time. Like, now we're at David Lynch. Like, it is it is light, upbeat, music, and it is the most horrifying thing I've ever heard in my entire life. It definitely does have that quality. And there's also the feeling of it being inescapable. Yeah. There's a point where it's New Year's Eve, and that's the time that Norma attempts suicide, right? It, this is the same time? Yes. Yes. And Joe leaves after the whole weird thing where she hires an orchestra for just the two of them to dance and then gets mad at him for not loving her and smacks him and so he's like fuck it i'm out of here i'm gonna go hang out with people my own age and he goes to this party with people who also seem younger than he is again that thing that you were talking about of how he doesn't seem as much like a boy toy as like He is younger than she is. Yeah. And I think this is important. He's not naive enough to not know from the beginning what's going on. And I think that that makes the movie much more interesting. But that party seems kind of horrific in a weird way. (laughs) Like the comparison to the quiet and very gaudy, but also very wealthy existence that he has been living to this cheap not terribly sophisticated apartment party where there's all these girls who are screaming and laughing and who are in a number of ways like the polar opposite of Norma Desmond but also seem very young and kind of annoying yeah and that that sort of trap of now people his own age or younger seem less appealing but also Norma is so oppressive and so needy that there is no possibility for joy for Joe. Yeah I think it is both important that like yeah I think as you say he's a real outsider at that party like he is clearly like not able to connect with those people the way that he could before Um, But that's also where he makes a connection with Betty. I don't think it's a full-on problem with this movie, but I do think a little bit that first hour until you get to the New Year's party, you are a little bit like, well, Joe's life is so miserable, he should just stay with Norma. Like, what what is there to lose by staying with Norma, really? Because his life is just a horror show anyway. And I do think that, brief escape gives you enough of a picture of a life he could be having 
outside of Norma Desmond. I think it is important both that that seems like kind of a weird fantasy, but it's weirdly important to go like, he can't escape this. That to have a scene where he tries to escape it and sees what escape looks like. Right. So that the movie can go, no, he's doomed. This is his life now. And God, it's so good. The thing I was talking to Nikki about was that I, when I last watched this movie, I didn't get Max at all. Like, I understood him as a character as like, oh, he's this creepy butler. And then it turns out that he has this like long-term connection with Norma where the, God, I almost don't want to ruin it because it's so good. I, yeah, I know. I'm so torn. But let's just, let's just leave it. <laughs> I, I the, mm, the only thing I want to say is that it sets up parts of the ending that I didn't get when I was younger and watched this movie. There is like a dream. I'm just going to say it and you can decide whether we can or should cut it out. Okay. There is this, when I say dream logic in that last scene, it isn't that I think like it doesn't make sense because it does make sense, but it makes sense in this way that in dreams you go like, oh, of course, like, of course it must be this. And that thing in the last scene where, oh, of course, Max has to direct her one last time. Like, of course, he has to be the one behind the camera. Right. Is this sort of beautiful, oh, and we've been setting it up for the entire movie. It isn't that the foundation isn't well laid. It's just that when it happens, there's this element, like, of course, it just locks into place. It doesn't necessarily make sense in that scene. Like, why are the newsreel guys like, you're in charge of me? But also at the same time, it makes total sense. He has that sense of authority about him. He used to be a director. Right. And you can justify it absolutely, but within the logic of the film, you almost don't need to because this was always how it was going to end. There was a weird, grim inevitability to this bizarre scene where Gloria Swanson is going 30 times too big, but somehow making it work. I find that to be true for so much of her performance. It is on the knife's edge of believable from beginning to end. Yeah. And you know, when you say believable with the caveat that Norma feels like she is always acting and like she doesn't know how to turn it off, not in a conscious sense. There's a scene where she calls Betty on the phone and she does something with her mouth that is, I, <laughs> this is a, this is when I wish that our podcast were a video podcast only for these moments. Um, but it's a very silent film thing where the actress pulls, sort of pulls her lips back and her teeth show and she's very angry. And she does that while talking on the phone to this woman who can't see her. <laughs> Yeah. And that to me was like, that is Norma Desmond in a nutshell. She is forever performing. And in this bit at the end where she is like pushing even harder, that balance is just so incredible. <laughs> like Gloria Swanson is possibly the greatest actress ever. <laughs> it's amazing. Part of what is amazing about it is that you genuinely watch it waiting for it to fall apart 
on a like millisecond by millisecond basis. Oh, absolutely. That there is just this sense of like, no, it can't. You can't do legally. You can't. <laughs> How is she doing this? Yeah. And because you're right, it is this extra layer where she has been performing as a person who is self-consciously performing at all times. And now there's this new layer on top of that where she is, on top of being a person who is constantly performing, actively performing as hard as she can so that she can be in denial about what has just happened, which is like all readable in this absolutely psychotic, over-the-top, rigor mortis face no human has ever made, but is still somehow exactly the face Norma Desmond would make in that moment. Like, it is a viable acting choice. Right. Even though no one has ever made that facial expression in human history. What absolutely sums up how good this performance is, at a private screening for, like, Hollywood people at Paramount, after the movie, Barbara Stanwyck got on her knees and kissed the hem of Gloria Swanson's <laughs> dress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. It's not even that the performance is like over the top. It's it's its own like weird, bizarre category of going big that somehow works. You have to credit Gloria Swanson. Yeah. You know, obviously no sort of film performance is a completely isolated incident. And like this movie is the result of a lot of people working, but like there is such a bizarre specificity to Norma Desmond. Yes. We've been watching Columbo lately um, for various reasons. <laughs> That's an the, interesting... Uh, the only reason I'm do bringing God. that up is because, like, faded star actress who murders somebody becomes kind of a stock type after this, right? Like, in the 70s and 80s, it becomes kind of a cliche that they're gonna murder to get back their fame, which is, one wild misreading of Norma Desmond, but two means that there are actually a lot of things to compare this performance to weirdly. There's a lot of things that are supposed to be somebody doing their Norma Desmond. And like, they never are because they're kind of too wily always, or they're too... This is making yet another, like, comparison aside, I guess. But after our Hamlet episode, I ended up talking to my dad briefly about Hamlet. And the thing he said that nobody gets about Hamlet is you actually can't resolve whether Hamlet is crazy or not. Because if you ever do, the play kind of falls apart. Hmm. That it is about that sort of razor's edge of being uncertain about this thing that makes it compelling. Because without that question hanging over you it is just a lot of hemming and hawing until everybody dies <laughs> and i think there is something sort of similar to all of the norma desmond alikes that have come along in the years later where they're all either this scheming femme fatale mastermind that will murder whoever it takes to become famous again or they're just totally at mercy to their art and they're just insane 
I think that Norma Desmond walks that knife's edge where you don't really have a good sense of when this is a put on, when this is her pride, when this is her need for fame, when this is just her being a, like emotional vortex. And in a weird sense, it kind of doesn't matter because she doesn't know. Well, I think also something that's really important and is often missed whenever you have these very obvious homages or ripoffs is that she's extremely vulnerable. Yeah. And if she's just wackadoodle and scary, or if she is extremely in control of the situation, you lose the thing that makes her compelling, which is that she's very, very fragile. And that all of this comes out of that fragility and that vulnerability and that she has been kept that way by this entire industry, by men in her life, that she has never been able to grow as a human being. And that Betty kind of is the foil for that, right? Where her parents wanted her to be a star and they paid to have her nose fixed. And then she was like, no, nah, I want to be a writer. What's wrong with being on the other side of the camera? And... One gets the sense that Betty is going to survive being dumped by Joe. <laughs> Norma does not. Yeah. Because she has been so bubble wrapped by every man in her life, including Cecil B. DeMille, who's like, oh, well, we can't just tell her that it was about the car. I'll be really sweet to her and have her sit and maybe she'll figure out from watching me do this scene that movies are very different now and that uh, maybe they're not for her. And it's like, just fucking tell her, man. <laughs> the other thing about that scene is the moment where the guy turns the spotlight on her and briefly everybody is entranced by Norma Desmond again. Yes. And you do go like, God, the script is bad, but she does actually still got it. Right. The problem actually on a certain level isn't her. There are so many moments like that that are so small and vital to characterization in this film. You're right that DeVille doesn't necessarily handle that scene great, and coddling her is maybe not the right choice. But I do love the moment where all of his young assistants are trying to talk shit about her. And are like, I heard she was a nightmare to work with. And he just goes, only toward the end. You know, six press agents working overtime can do terrible things to the human spirit. And you're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or when they say, oh, she's what, like 100 now? And he says, she's younger than I am. So what does that make me? I could, I could be, her be her father. father. <laughs> <laughs> the very first scene with Norma has, I, the, I'm still big. It's the pictures that got small. Like it comes out swinging the moment she's there. And at first you're like, man, you maybe should have kept the powder dry. Like that line's fucking incredible. But then like all of her lines are fucking incredible. It is a movie of moments that are all that good that are in kind of not a bad package, but like I do feel like I it does a weird disservice to explain the plot of this movie. Because the plot of this movie is just sort of like, yeah, there's some noir shit. He meets a crazy old actress. The crazy old actress becomes so attached to him and the idea of the, her fame returning that she can't handle him leaving her. 
and her fame being gone forever and shoots him. That is the that is the explanation of the incidents that happen in the film Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Yeah. And it in no way <laughs> yeah. tells you what is so great about it. And there's all these little Easter eggs in it, too, that I think actually are really interesting. Like the fact that Eric von Straheim, who plays Max and who also was the villain question mark in grand illusion started his career as a director mm-hmm. and directed gloria swanson in queen kelly which is the film that is used in sunset boulevard when norma is looking back at how beautiful and great she was as a silent movie actor <laughs> yeah uh, i just love that <laughs> yeah he's so good and he's so understated yeah he never like that is the wildest thing is that people obviously make a big deal about how gloria swanson is norma desmond in a lot of ways was a silent movie star did have her career kind of disappear certainly in film um for basically the same period norma desmond did before this movie though ironically worked predominantly in radio in the 30s yeah but i actually think it is max it's eric von stroheim that has the just absolutely wildest how did you (laughs) how did you find max like actual real life max for this part that has like his exact yes because when you hear max's backstory toward the end of the film it's insane Like, you have to be in this movie's wavelength for you to accept that, like, what you have to understand is I used to be one of the most famous directors on Earth and you don't remember me because I was once her first husband and I have just remained obsessively loyal to her to the point where I'm now her butler and follow her around and write fake fan letters for her. You're like... That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But by the time you're an hour 20 into Sunset Boulevard, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that that totally checks out. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. (laughs) But then on top of that, that obviously they weren't married. um, And Eric Vosterham went on to have a career. But that you did actually find this guy that was a director, did direct Gloria Swanson, was kind of forgotten about as a director, and did have this weird sort of sense of remorse around how Hollywood had changed and destroyed the lives of people he loved when he was younger. It's just like crazy. And was the director for the film that sort of ended her career. Yeah. Not just any movie, but the film that basically ended Gloria Swanson's film career until she came back at Sunset Boulevard. (laughs) This is wild. Yeah, I mean, obviously this film is sprinkled over with fairy dust. Like, the amount of things that are too perfect and how so many stars aligned to make this happen and happen as well as it did... Makes it one of those films where you're like, okay, I'm watching this and I know that it's 1950 and it feels like it takes place in 1948 and yet it has a timelessness to it that is very, that's unusual. Not just 
you know, in film generally, which of course, but even for movies that we have watched for this podcast, that it felt to me the way that Citizen Kane felt or Casablanca felt, where it's like, this is so much better than everything else that is happening (laughs) in film right now. And also generally that how do you even nominate other things against it? And it didn't win. No. So All About Eve has a case to make. It ain't a Citizen Kane year where everything we're going to watch from here on out, I'm just going to be like, well, who fucking cares? Citizen Kane came out. Like, you lose. Goodbye. Right. <laughs> like, th- th- like, yes. This movie is incredible. And another incredible movie came out this year. Which I'm very excited to watch. So. Yeah. I don't want to. It's weird to go like, I don't want to overhype all about Eve. <laughs> But I do think that Sunset Boulevard is already solid. Billy Wilder knows what he's doing. Gloria Swanson is giving one of the greatest performances of all time. But at the same time, there is a kind of a weird lightning in a bottle aspect to it. Yeah. Apparently, the first scene of this movie was supposed to be Joe in a morgue as a dead body, talking to all the other dead bodies about how he died, and them all being like, your story is the best. And like, God, what a disaster. Like, thank God test audiences hated that. You can still sort of see the imprints of that on the structure of this movie. Most notably that Joe's narration continues after he dies. But I actually love the weird, it adds to that thing I keep saying is a dreamlike quality to that coda. Right. That it's kind of out of nowhere that Joe is like, anyway, now you know that's my dead body. You know, life can be kind sometimes. And you're like, the fuck is happening? Like, <laughs> and, and like in yeah, the best way yeah. possible. But Jesus, what? Well, and I'm glad that they cut that part because the opening shot that you like so much where there's Sunset Boulevard on the curb yeah, of the, on the street. street. It's, yeah. it's on the gutter, David. It's on the fucking gutter. Yes, I should have specified <laughs> And like, oh my god, that's that just, just encapsulates the whole film, right? Yeah. Uh, so I guess we should rate this movie. It's fucking great. You should watch yeah, it. Yeah, you should absolutely watch this movie 10 out of 10. Yeah, 10. I was bending over backwards last night out of fear that like I'd done too much of a called shot having our friendship ride on you loving this movie and talking myself into like, I guess I could give this movie an eight without wanting to die no it's a nine no it's a ten it's i can't do it it's a ten like it's just too good it's a ten yeah yeah and uh, next week we're also watching an all-time classic although i think we we may have watched our best picture it will be very hard for anything to top this but like all about eve i will see all about eve is supposed to be pretty fucking great so we will see yeah tune in next week i guess to see if it is betty davis or gloria swanson who (laughs) leads the best film of this year yeah because i have a feeling it's not gonna be king solomon's minds or born yesterday yeah i was about to throw that out there i might be totally wrong but here's the thing father of the bride isn't like amazing But as a three-film run, have we had a three-film run this good in 
our history of this podcast. I haven't actually seen all about Eve, so I don't know. Uh, that's fair. We will then talk about this next week. But to be fair, I don't think we've had a two film. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> I think we've had two in a row where we've gone pretty good for both of them. But like, you know what? Pretty solid. Glad they remade this into one of the best films of all time into also one of the best films of all time is like what you would expect from a podcast where we watch every movie nominated for best picture, but it hasn't happened. I'm going to tell you that was my expectation when I suggested starting this podcast and my expectations have not been met. Yeah. It hasn't been met for 20 years of cinema history. Yep. But we're finally getting there. Anyway, join us next week for All About Eve and a hearty debate about which movies that are like the cornerstones for women in film for the next 70 years is better. <laughs> and until then... God, this was a fucking movie. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> Goodbye, Bye, everybody. everybody. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. <laughs>